Hi, I'm Corey Nathan, and this is Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. Your home for edifying, provocative, and fun conversations among high-profile public figures and regular folks like me. We talk about faith and politics and all kinds of topics that really matter in our culture. So if you're tired of all the screamers out there taking all the oxygen out of the room and you want to join us and taking some of that space back, you'll love talking politics and religion without killing each other. Thanks for spending some time with us. Enjoy today's show. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We are talking politics and religion without killing each other. I am your host, Corey Nathan, and I am so grateful to have a place to talk about faith and politics and big ideas in our culture with all kinds of interesting, accomplished folks of goodwill and good faith. Please remember to subscribe if you haven't already. And if you have subscribed, maybe go onto another app and subscribe there. (laughs) We can use all the downloads we can get. Uh, But also just remember, tell a friend about us, give us a good rating, leave a review. There's lots of ways you can support the show. Easiest way to find us is our main site, which is www.politicsandreligion.us. That's politics with the end spelled out, religion, politics and religion.us. Or feel free to connect with me on all the socials, Facebook, because I'm old. <laughs> Instagram, I'm trying to take more pictures. Twitter, yeah, still on that one. LinkedIn and even post.news, because I'm with it. And it's at Corey S. Nathan. That's at C-O-R-E-Y-S as in Sam Nathan, at Corey S. Nathan. All of that helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation like the one we're having today with Kevin Singer. Kevin Singer is president of Neighborly Faith, which conducts research and organizes events introducing Christians to neighbors of every faith. Kevin was actually raised at the intersection of his mother's evangelical faith and his father's Reformed Jewish roots, which we'll definitely have to talk about. He earned graduate degrees in theology from Wheaton College and higher ed from NC State. Kevin has extensive teaching and leadership experience in churches, campus ministries, and colleges. He planted two churches with the North American Mission Board from 2009 through 2014, and is also head of media relations and PR at Springtide Research Institute. Kevin is a prolific writer with placements in Christianity Today, Religion News, Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, Psychology Today, Inside Higher Ed, and more. But today we got him on TPNR. Kevin, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Corey. It's great to have this conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm glad you're you're with us. So as I already alluded, it caught my eye. You grew up with an evangelical mom. Your dad has reformed Jewish roots. So I was curious about that and have a, a couple questions. Yeah. Like, did, did your dad become a Christian? Did you stay in touch with your with your family's Jewish roots? T- tell me about that. Yeah, yeah. So this is a big part of my journey, uh, sort of where I am today and what I love to do. It was real interesting, you know, being like a, a Christian in my house growing up um, because my mom was really new to religion and my dad uh, was against religion. Uh, he was like so. So, it, it, you know, growing up uh, in a Jewish family, he had faced quite a bit of anti-Semitism uh, as a kid. Where, where did he grow up in the north? He, he, he grew up in the Chicago area, like in the north, north. Brook area. Okay. Um, and so he he took some flack for for being Jewish and um that really turned him off on faith. Mm-hmm. And 
So my mom was like, you know, really uh, turning to faith. And I think he felt a little bit threatened by that. So we, we didn't pray in my house. We didn't have Bibles out. We, uh, but my mom took us to church, me and my brothers faithfully. But yeah, I, I, I learned how to be a Christian in that context. Now my dad eventually started going to church. And uh, I don't know if he, he passed away in 2013. I don't know if, you know, what, what his relationship was to Christianity when he passed. I know that he was going to church consistently, and um, uh, that, that was obviously huge for, for their marriage. And, uh, but, but, yeah, no, my, my dad's family, still, uh, still um, Jews. I don't know how devout they are at this point in time, but yeah, bar bat mitzvahs. Um, several of my cousins went on the Jewish birthright trip to Israel and, uh, we've had good conversations about Christianity and Judaism and similarities, differences and the whole, the whole lot. So, uh, so yeah, that's, that's where I kind of, I'm like, I don't even know how to be a Christian and not be around people who are, are, you know, against it or have questions about it or curiosities about it, or, you know, I've really always lived my faith with, with that in mind. So so with the Jewish side of the family, have you ever discussed our, you, you know, I grew up observantly Jewish before I became a Christian. I don't know if I okay. told you that. Yeah. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, so I very much connect on this, uh, on this level. Um, did you ever discuss with the Jewish side of your family? We, we have this cultural allergy to proselytization. I, I still have a, a bit of that, even though yeah. I'm a born again Bible thumper myself. Yeah. Um, did you ever discuss that with the Jewish side of the family, where it comes from and, and ways that uh, American evangelicals, even perhaps unknowingly, w- where where evangelicals have crossed the line? Have you ever discussed that with them? Well, I think, you know, as an evangelical, you, you kind of you're sort of you're sort of programmed to think that, like, faith is a decision and it's a it's an impassioned decision. Right. Like it's. It's a decision of passion. It's a decision of of you know like the the uh, the laying down of one's own will, right? right, and the taking on of of a new life and a new purpose and a new identity in Christ. I mean, with my dad's side of the family, it's very ethno religious. It's it's sort of like it's you know what it means to be part of the family, what it means to be part of the lineage, the tradition is so uh, familial. It's it's instinctual. It's not decision based, right? And so. Yeah, we've had very interesting conversations where, especially when I was really on fire in college, you know, like really wanting to to see a decision. Like, what do you what is your decision about Jesus? Yeah. And (laughs) that was just that was definitely not not really part of their uh, psychology spiritually was is very much about the tradition, the family and and there's probably something to teach us as Christians in that, in that vein. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was a bit awkward when I was like, you know, like who Jesus is, is the most important question. They're like, what do you, you know, what are you talking about? You know? And I would bring up scriptures, you know, who do you think this is in Isaiah 53 and, you know, these messianic prophecies about, you know, this is, you know, Christians read Jesus back into the old Testament, right? Like, Oh, that's Jesus right there. They didn't know they were talking about Jesus, but don't worry. They were, yeah. And I think for them, they're like, well, you know, we we see that as Elijah or or somebody else. And I'm like, what? Like <laughs> they were just they were so much more charitable, I think, in those conversations, you know, back when I was on fire in college than than I probably was. But, yeah, really good lessons to be learned from those conversations. Yeah, it's funny when uh, I was just back east with uh, three of my best friends that I grew up with. And uh, they they recalled when I first became a Christian, I was pretty on fire. I was studying apologetics. 
And I was basically trying to, I came to, I came to Christ in my late twenties and uh, they recounted how um, I would uh, try to argue each one of them into heaven, you know, into like making a decision, you know, but I, I can't shake my Jewishness. I can't shake who I am and whose yeah. son I am and whose grandson I am, great grandson. I am. I can't shake any of that. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm still, I'm still a Jew, man. I'm still, hey. you know, and, and after the uh, initial fervor kind of chilled a little bit, not, not that I'm any less on fire for the Lord, but like after I started to see, I, I came to a greater conviction that you can't really argue someone into conversion, you know, right. I don't think that like you, if you, if you memorize the entirety of evidence that demands a verdict and had every perfect comeback for every objection, it's still not going to work. <laughs> you know. So, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, I, I think probably what that speaks to is the fact that we as humans have, you know, we have a mind, we can be cerebral, but we also have a soul and a spirit and things have to align. I mean, a lot of the debating I think can, can, uh, pigeonhole you know up here in the mind in the intellect and but your your spirit has to has to um has to be aligned with what you're hearing and then believing yeah yeah i mean it's not a coincidence a central verse for both uh non-christian jews as well as christians hebrew bible as well as in new testament scripture central verses love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength it can't merely be a mental loving mm -hmm. with the mind it has to be encompassing um so you know Obviously, I'm an example of, of folks coming to that conclusion. But for me, looking back, I, I had this conversation um, on Monday uh, over lunch with a friend, and I, I realized that back then it really did touch upon all those different dimensions of what makes us human for me. Uh, it was a long process for me, but I had to engage something spiritually, uh, it, intellectually, emotionally. I had to weigh the consequences of what decision I was going to ultimately make. So mm -hmm. it touched upon all of those different dimensions. Yeah. So you, you mentioned, you mentioned your experience in college. I noticed that undergrad, you studied communications with a minor in philosophy. So what you're doing today, um, vocationally, it seems like it was a general focus from pretty early on. Is that right? To be honest, when I was an undergrad, I just wanted to get out in ministry as fast as I could and I was really involved with um, with a campus ministry group called Crew, or formerly Campus Crusade. And uh, I just felt like when I was doing Bible study leadership and leading mission trips, and um, I just felt like my calling in life was sort of firing on all cylinders. And you know, I've, I got into church planting. Um, I, uh, I I was a little intimidated by you know, crew, you've got to raise your, 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 uh, salary. And with church planning, they were, you know, they gave me a thousand dollars a month out of college, which, you know, thousand dollars a month for a college kid. You're like, Whoa. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, you're rolling like it. Movie <laughs> blank check. Right. Yeah. It's like, I'm going to buy a roller coaster. I'm going to swim through chocolate milk with my mouth open and I'm going <laughs> to, you know, and, um, and so, uh, no, I, I really wanted to get into vocational ministry as, as, as fast as I could. I just felt like that's what I was made to do. And, um, I thought I've got the gift of, you know, uh, helping people who are far from God to see him and experience him and, um, or to make that, make that exchange possible. So I, uh, that, that I, I, I really don't look back on my undergrad and think much other than, um, Okay, I did the uh, the major with the least amount of credits, and I 
launched into <laughs> uh, church planting at a thousand miles per hour. And I, I probably would have done well with a little bit more coaching and training. Um, uh, but I made some really great relationships, saw some people come to know Jesus personally. And, and, um, that was really obviously a blessing, but yeah, I look back and I'm like, eh, I was young. I was very young. Um, yeah, those years were really instructional. So, so take me down the vocational path, the story of, yeah. of you know, college, grad school, yeah. another graduate degree, um, to where you are now with Springtide and Neighborly Faith. Yeah. And I'll make this fairly short. I mean, I was in church planting ministry and I was starting new churches and uh, the way that I was working with the the Southern Baptist convention and the way that it was, it worked at the time as they gave you funding for a few years. And the expectation was that after a few years, the congregation could sustain your salary, could uh, take that on. And uh, I was working with college kids so that that one going to work. Um, so I walked into a community college down the street. My wife was pregnant with, uh, with our first, uh, my son, um, and I needed some extra income. So I walked into a community college down the street cause they had a new Testament course. And I said, okay, I can teach you new Testament. I know about the new Testament. And they said, actually, we've got a world religions course for you to teach. You know, all about world religions. Right. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. I didn't know anything about world religions. <laughs> at all that's right funny. like i knew enough to know they were wrong right like right, that's right. What i knew that that's kind of where my question was going like if it's yeah. a secular community college you, you got yeah, how in the world right yeah how in the world this is not the path of most seminary grads i should say this is not <laughs> but i right. but i like to look back at my you know growing up with a sort of multi-religious home different you know religious uh, thoughts on religion and perspectives and i i really felt like a, that that formed me a bit for this opportunity. I wasn't intimidated by it. I thought this is exciting. And so, you know, at age, I guess I was 24, 25, I was, you know, teaching multiple classes a semester and in the Chicago burbs where I was teaching, that was so diverse. There were Sikhs and Hindus and Muslims and Buddhists and Catholics and lapsed Catholics and Vatican one Catholics and Vatican two Catholics. And if there's a Vatican three, I'm sure there's one of those two in the class. <laughs> And I'm talking to all these different students of other faiths about every faith, but it was amazing to me how few had ever learned about Christianity. You know, I thought we live in the Chicago burbs. Everybody's like half Catholic. How does so many of these students not know anything about Christianity? And and that's that when I realized, uh, oh, my goodness, like this is such an opportunity um, not to, you know, subvert my teaching ethically, but realizing like there are so many people of different worldviews out there who simply do not know a Christian. They have no relationships with Christians. And this is where I feel like I could fit in. Um, it was definitely weird though. People thought I was weird. They didn't quite understand, you know, where is this coming from? Because at the time Christians just wanted to reach atheists because the four, you know, horsemen and the atheism, and that's what it was all about. That was our, you know, sort of metaphorical opponent in the, tournament of worldviews. And so to be thinking about Muslims and stuff, that was very, that was very unique. And so I got some weird looks, but anyway, yeah. I, I'll stop there for the time being, but that was sort of the beginnings of like the seminary guy jumping into this new path toward, you know, what does it look like for Christians to, to know and love their neighbors of other faiths? Was that a time when you began to evolve your views on proselytization or at least the way that American evangelicals have been doing it, you know, in our lifetime. I will say this. 
I think what I learned is getting to know people is worth your time. Like, and and, and look, I know that sounds like, well, yeah, yeah, totally is. But like, I don't know if a lot of evangelicals are taught, coach, trained to really give over their time to someone who is not a Christian. Now, we give over a little bit of time when we're in that conversation and we're sort of in the heat of that evangelism. Um, we might give our time to helping out if they they had an emergency or like we sort of imagine, well, if they were ever to you know have an emergency, I would be there for them. But to really like give our time and our and and our emotional and spiritual energy to like building trust and and really having a consistent presence, that that's not something I think I at least I can say I, I don't know if I walked out of my church life and my life in campus ministry and said, oh yeah, I would feel that it would be worth my time and faithful to my God to spend time every week, for example, hanging out with with a Muslim. Like, I don't think I would have said that's, that's what I came out of those experiences feeling. I think I came out of those experiences and I thought, how can I get you to the gospel to a point of decision as soon as I possibly can? I didn't see the greater social ramifications of me not being a jerk to someone of another faith. I didn't see that. I just thought people are dying. They're going to hell. We got to do something about that. Right. It's, it's this sort of everything's urgent and, and, you know, God can, overlook anything weird I do in a conversation with someone whose beliefs I barely understand. Like I can overcome all that. And uh, having done neighborly faith now for, for years, it, it has shown me relationship and trust building. Those are still the coin of the realm. And that is, you know, if we want to say that people can't be compulsed into religion, that we have to have something to back that up and that's relationship. So that's really where things changed for me. You know, I love what it, what you're saying really resonates because I've, I've become a lot more cynical, not yeah. cynical, um, uh, critical of the transactional nature of some of American evangelicalism um, that, Hey, I'm going to, like I said before, I'm going to argue you into this point where you say a magic prayer and now we're good. I got the, I made the sale. Right. Um, or add it or to the it, list of baptisms, 200 <laughs> right? baptisms. Bang. Yeah. Another one for Jesus, you know, um, zap, right? Zap or the ministry part of it. When you're, when you're yeah. doing quote unquote ministry work, it's really more like the religious version of, um, of a timeshare where, yeah. okay, I'll come and build the house, but then, you know, I'm going to do my, my presentation. Right. Yeah. 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 Whereas what you're saying is we're, your focus is more on relational versus transactional. And it's, it's my relationship to an individual, another, uh, th that individual's relationship within a community, within a body of believers, perhaps, maybe that's what we're inviting them to if, if we do invite them. So I, I don't know that the relational mindset just makes so much more is richer and deeper and uh, real relationships aren't necessarily contingent. You know, I was right. listening to this other podcast, shout out to my, my peeps at, at the village square. They have a series called the God squad. And, um, so that's uh, the, they invite uh, people of faith of different faiths to the village square to have these great conversations. And one of the questions in the most recent God Squad, actually, I might be uh, uh, this might be scooping it. Oh no, no, it comes out 
it'll come out before this episode comes out. But one of the questions was, when you're in relationship with someone, is there anything they could do to sever that relationship? And I won't share the answers, but it's a really, it's at least a very good question to think about. Most of my real relationships are non-contingent. I mean, there's obviously a, a breaking point. Uh, I'm sure if you do something to harm uh, someone I love, if you do something that is um, so explicitly unethical, immoral, um, you know, one of, I will say one of the speakers in, in that particular one said, um, well, for most of my friends, I'll say, okay, where do we bury the body? And then you're going to have to tell me what's up later, <laughs> you know, so right. they'll be on board and, you know, but um, yep. That, but that's relationship, man. So I, I what you're saying really resonates. So you mentioned neighborly faith. I, I, I talked about it a little bit when I introduced you. Neighborly faith is focused on training tomorrow's leaders to be faithful and flourish in an increasingly diverse world. That's my dog. My dog wants to flourish in this diverse world as well. Bring, bring it. <laughs> all right. Come on, it's also It's also about knowing and serving all of our neighbors. So help unpack those goals and how the organization achieves them. You know, I think uh, if I could use this, I'll I'll give our our you know something official in a second. But I think evangelicals uh, confuse discernment with distance. So they think by avoiding my neighbors of other faiths, that is a an expression of discernment. It's like they have this message that could tempt me. It could it could uh, sway me. It could uh um scare me right and so we think that is so discerning don't get too close to a hindu or a muslim that's discerning right but we're discerning ourselves right out of relationship right like we're discerning ourselves right out of an opportunity to uh to live out the the great commission as we call it um it's really the great omission we just sort of like we don't <laughs> we don't want we create distance in the name of discernment and i think again i think what we as neighborly faith see as the problem is the distance it's the it's the lack of uh proximity yeah um it's amazing when we talk with christian audiences across the country how many reasons people have to maintain that distance. Like the last thing so many American Christians will do is just show up. They will do everything else, but show up. They will pray themselves out of it. They will fast themselves out of it. They will discern themselves out of it. They will, you know, ministry themselves out of it. If you can believe that, but they will not just show up. And that is, that's a real killer in this culture, in this society, you know, people we don't like, people we don't agree with, people who don't, you know, uh, agree with us on every point. We're like, we're not showing up. And uh, what that results in is uh, people not knowing a Christian. That's that's what that means. Right. It's so simple, but it's 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 uh, it's so consequential. Right. It's people don't know a Christian. Muslims don't know a Christian. And they know about Christianity, but they know about it from the perspective of someone who doesn't believe it. And so they hear a lot from Muslim teachers and leaders who are great people and well-intentioned and love their faith, but they're they're not teaching Christianity in a way that a Christian would teach it, right? And so they're left with sometimes a usually pretty truncated understanding of what Christianity is all about. It's usually like some form of – it's tritheism, it's paganism, it's – sort of a pollution of the truth. And, you know, then we both see each other through the lens of 
what we think about them or say about them rather than actually speaking to them or or having a thinking time with them. That felt all over the place. But the point is, <laughs> we really want to increase proximity between Christians and Muslims. We want to create opportunities for them to be in relationship and to be engaging with one another. Now, we are not refereeing these experiences. Too many like interfaith things out there referee the crap out of conversations across faiths, what you can and can't do, can and can't say, what are the rules of the space? What are the ground rules? And the whole thing is just performative virtue signal. Like we're all nice. You're nice. I'm nice. We're super nice. Your faith is so nice. My faith is so nice. <laughs> we're all so nice. Gosh, that was nice. Wasn't that nice? You're so nice. And it's just, here's the thing though. None of my friendships are built on that, on that foundation. None of my strongest friendships are built on the foundation of you're so nice. I'm so nice. No, the people who I love and love me, our relationships are built on the foundation of transparency, like, and trust and accountability and authenticity. Like that is what real relationships are based on. And so when we bring Christians and Muslims into a space, we just want them to be who they are. And the craziest thing happens. They don't fight each other. Right. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> what it is, is it's provocative and it's disruptive in a really good way. Yeah. Um, where people figure out, okay, I've got to figure out a way to explain the divinity of Christ to someone who does not believe in the divinity of Christ. I have to be able to explain the Trinity to someone who has a non-Trinity, right? Like I've got to figure out how to explain, you know, why I pray five times a day to someone who, you know, prays once before bed, you know, with their eyes closed. Like it's it is it is the it is the difference in the space that makes for the best conversations. So that's what neighborly faith is really all about. We want people to show up and be who they are, and we want it to be an experience where people realize it's really through being transparent and honest that we can have a real relationship, not uh, sort of a fuzzy like, you know, I'm going to withhold and I'm going to uh, abridge and I'm going to sanitize my beliefs about hell and salvation and wrath, and I'm going to do all of that in the name of being nice. And we just we, we've done a lot of that. We don't see any of it leading to any meaningful or substantial societal or interpersonal change. And so we're we we just really want the raw thing. We want the raw deal of people showing up and being honest. And that's yeah. something really unique about our work. Yeah, that's, that's another um, good point that came up in, in the same at the same lunch uh, I had a couple of days ago. And it was evangelism by presenting by presenting myself my kids, my family at what, you know, we, we must be right about everything. Uh, and therefore you need to agree and say this, you know, <laughs> do mm -hmm. the thing and become a Christian because look, I'm good looking, I'm rich. Um, you know, <laughs> I'm mm -hmm. right. And I don't cuss. And yeah. like, I don't know, man, <laughs> that's like a deal breaker for me. If somebody doesn't like, first of all, I'm from Jersey. So we don't cuss, we curse. <laughs> right. But, but you know, I don't know. Like that to me, that's just presenting something. It, it seems so like, I don't know, my kid's teeth are white. Therefore you need to become a Christian. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It can get really like, uh, and don't, I mean, it, it, yeah, it's, it is, I would really invite people. If I could invite every one of your listeners to sit in a room with Muslim and Christian college students and just watch them try to navigate some of these conversations and just the beauty of the messiness and the imperfection of those conversations like it is, it's truly a wonderful thing to behold. So I, I was going to ask you about that. This isn't to students. You actually um, describe. The, so Neighborly Faith hosted a conversation between Southern Baptist Convention President J.D. Greer, 
Right. And uh, correct me if I don't pronounce this right. Yakin Institute. Is that how you say it? Right. Omar Suleiman, who's the Omar president Suleiman. of Yakin. That's right. Yep. An imam. Uh, so uh, Imam Suleiman said, I was, and uh, he said, I was and am fine with his, Pastor Greer's vision for uh, of the hereafter, not having space for me, referring to himself, so long as it doesn't become an obstacle to me having space in the here and now. I love that. That quote's incredible. Oh, so I was going to ask you if that's a part of the, like the point of, of the work that neighborly faith does. Yeah. So I love that quote because it's an example of what I would say giving credit to are so many of our Muslim neighbors who, uh, because we've all heard it said, like, if you really believe something, you're not like tremendously defensive about it, right? Like people who are tremendously defensive about something, you wonder how much they really believe it, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and some of our Muslim neighbors are so earnest. They truly believe the things they believe. And I remember thinking when I became a Christian that Christians are the only ones who are really earnest. Like then I saw a video of Muslims at the Hajj, which is the pilgrimage that they're all supposed to take once in their life to Mecca, uh, which was the the – where uh, Muhammad's ministry began and seeing them in this video, like crying out with tears. I remember thinking, Oh, Oh, Whoa, this is not, I thought Christians were the only people who had the kinds of connections with God that would make us cry. Right. And I should be careful here by connection with God. I mean, perceived connection with God. Right. I'm not trying to get into a theological yeah, yeah, war here. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. So and that that was really disruptive in a good way because it 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 really helped me. OK, these are conversation partners who are really serious about their faith and really believe strongly what they believe. This is like and I thought, gosh, what better uh, what better conversation partner? I mean, if you ain't a Christian, it should be a Muslim. <laughs> right. Because they are they they believe really strongly. And and not only that, and this is an aside, but they make really great allies in society on a number of fronts, on a number of issues, religious freedom being one of them, because it turns out if the Muslim can't worship it, it it's there. It's 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 going to come after the, the Christian, too. Right. Like because we both have beliefs that are strange in society. <laughs> so yeah. but anyway, all that to say, I think. Muslims tr believe tremendously in 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 what they have come to to know, and so many of them do. Now they don't all. I mean, just like not every Christian, you know, is like super duper Christian, right? Some Muslims are like, I don't know why I'm Muslim, other than the fact that I grew up in a Muslim family. But the but there are so many who believe very strongly, and because of that, they can be in conversation with us as Christians in ways that are really constructive. And really thought provoking, and it doesn't devolve into like petty argument and personal insult and like the kinds of things that our political dialogue often becomes, which is what makes them such exciting conversation partners. We can really give it to them, right? Like this is the gospel and all of its meaning and power and glory. And they might come back and say, okay, 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 okay. That's you think I'm going to hell? I, I think you might be going to hell, right? And it's like this is honesty. But like it doesn't it doesn't undermine the friendliness of saying, you know, I really appreciated this conversation. I love I didn't get defensive. You didn't get defensive. We both are very serious about God and faith and how God is in the world and everything. And um, Omar saying that, I think, is a testament to so many of the Muslims we've met who are like, yeah, give it to me. Give me the gospel. Give it to me in every in every way you've heard it in the most powerful presentation. 
Omar showed so much grace in that conversation with JD. JD was as evangelical as the next guy, right? And he shared the gospel and, um, but watching their friendship really begin to bloom on that stage with neither of them. I didn't sense anyway that either of them were uh, feeling the need to uh, suppress difference or dismiss important differences between them in order to be friends. And that was really cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. That's um, that's that's encouraging. That, that, that sounds like a really cool. What other types of events does Neighborly Faith put on? And and what are what are the primary goals of of doing events like these? Yeah, so we do forums on campuses where we get a Christian speaker and a Muslim speaker. So next weekend, we're going to a college in Pennsylvania. We're bringing a pastor and an imam, and they're going to talk about their friendship. They're going to talk about what does justice look like in each of our faiths. And we're you know conversating around those t- common topics Yeah, is really interesting because then you get to compare. I, I learn by comparison. Sometimes I don't know like if if what I'm thinking or doing is right until I compare it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh, now I see what makes my faith unique, what makes this perspective unique, what makes this position unique. And so I think when a Christian and a Muslim talk about justice, it's like, okay, now we're going to really chisel out what does Christianity think about this in reference to how another faith thinks about it. Now, there's a lot of similarities too, so I don't want to sell those short. We love to bring Muslim professionals to Christian college classes virtually. So we uh, are it's called our boundless program so we've got muslims in medicine and psychology business law finance political science journalism who join christian college classes virtually and talk about their work as a doctor a psychologist uh, a ceo and the impression it makes on students is incredible students are like wow i thought muslims just we're refugees or something as sad as that is. Or I, th- I thought Muslims just worshiped all day. Like they literally are learning for the first time that Muslims are working, contributing citizens and neighbors in our country. And it, again, there might be people listening who are like, well, well, yeah, duh. But you'd again, I mean, if you ask the everyday evangelical, is that Muslim foreign? Like, are they a citizen of America? I bet you three fourths of evangelicals would say, I don't know. They could be. Uh, they could be fresh off the boat, you know, like they could <laughs> yeah. be running from, you know, religious war. They could be. And so when we, you know, give Christians statistics about how many Muslims are international and how many are domestic, there's a lot of raised eyebrows in the room. It's 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 a totally new thing to say, oh, this is a Muslim who has, per, you know, like we've got someone on our speakers roster for this program who came up with a revolutionary procedure for prostates. And that procedure is now being used globally across hundreds of countries, right? Like this is someone who is accomplished, loves his fellow man, has done incredible things. Yeah. Um, and for Christian students to meet that person and to and to to see to hear their story and to see the kind of love they have for others and do, doing that through medicine, I mean, it's those experiences are incredible. And then we do media. We have people write essays. We do podcasts. Um, we really want to normalize reaching out across faiths among Christians in our society. Yeah. Now, in one interview you did back in 2020, you said that in a way you're trying to reach Christians through your ministry. Uh, is that still the case? And if so, in, in what ways and for what ends are you reaching other Christians? I know, right? We're starting to sound like a like a sect or a cult, right? <laughs> like we got to reform. They got to they gotta read our book, right? <laughs> no, I will say, though, my, my dad goes to a Chabad. 
which is uh, Orthodox uh, synagogues. Yeah. But Chabad is sort of a uh, sort of evangelical in their own way, but they're reaching other Jews, you know, they're, and they're trying to help other Jews uh, become sure. you know, deeper in their faith, more observant in, in, in you know, observing the 613 laws of, of Kashrut. So it, it reminded me when you said that, it, it reminded me of, uh, you know, neighborly faith is a little bit like Chabad in that way. Yeah. You know what I would say by reaching Christians? What I mean is, you know, I think it's in Galatians where uh, Peter distances himself from Paul or he distances himself from the Gentiles. Right. It's like a, a distancing. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of an embarrassment. Right. I think we want to see Christians become a little less like Peter in that moment and a little bit more like Paul in Acts 17, where he walks into that Areopagus and he says, I see that in every way you consider yourselves to be very religious. Right. And I've read your poets. I've read your philosophers. I see that in every way you are worshipers of the unknown God, right? Like, but this God that you worship, you know, has been revealed, right? In these, you know, and 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 now in every place he just, you know, he desires to be known. And I would love to see Christians become a little less like Peter in that moment, a little bit more like Paul in Acts 17, where they are engaging with people of other worldviews and perspectives on the big things of life, the gods they worship the practices they do, the food they eat. And again, less about distance, more about just showing up and being in relationship. And Acts 7, 10, I'm so glad that's in the scriptures because man, I'm not sure we would do without it. That and the good Samaritan, right? Kind of going out of your way to help someone who you are not supposed to love. Unfortunately, it's just become too normative. Like if you are a Christian, you have this belief about Muslims and it's, uh, it's unfortunate because um, they're just, they're incredible people and, uh, they, they deserve all the love in the world. So we've talked all this time and, and, uh, I, I haven't hit upon some of the other work that you do. Uh, you, you describe yourself, I think, is it on your Twitter feed as a, a Gen Z that, that I remember now that you're an expert in Gen Z. So, okay. So we mentioned springtime, uh, springtide research Institute, an organization that specializes in Gen Zers, specifically how young folks experience and express community, identity, and meaning. So as a Gen Z expert, what are some of the big picture differences that people in this age group find meaning as individuals and within communities uh, compared to their parents' generation, like like me, whether it's Gen X yep. like me or, or mm -hmm. early millennials in some cases? What are some of the big differences there? Yeah. So with Gen Z, they don't trust, uh, uh, they don't trust institutions. So that is, that is a key, key differentiator between Gen Z and older generations. So it, it, I know that for years and years, the church has said like, you can't win them over with programs, right? Like you can't just put a Mario game on the screen and expect people to come to Christ. <laughs> but I think it was still kind of working though, but it was like cool to be like emerging in that way and be like, you know, like you need, you know, beer and and bourbon and cigars and the gospel. And like we it was like being different in those ways. But the church was still sort of rebranding and people still trusted it so long as it looked like me and talked like me. But now with Gen Z, it's even there's even less benefit of the doubt. It's 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 they are not impressed by institutional faith. Um, and here's the thing. I know there's people who are like, sure, 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 sure. But there are really on fire kids in my youth group. I believe that. And there are definitely young people who are still like into the church. And we did a study, even neighborly faith and springtide where we asked young evangelicals, like who is influencing you on the issues of the day? And they said, our pastors, our youth group leaders, our worship leaders, our Bible study leaders. So there are still young people who are ingrained 
but the there is a large majority though of young people who uh they're just not going to walk into a church i don't care how many strobes i don't care what you got in the cafe um they are still spiritual though a large number of young people still identify as spiritual and religious but for them that looks a little bit less like the pew and a little bit more like gosh what could it be activism crystals yoga martial arts art um nature reading writing um meditation uh anime i mean the list goes on and on it, i mean spirituality is definitely not prototypical anymore uh for gen z they really want to understand they really want to be spiritual in ways that feel authentic to who they are and their identities i know that makes evangelicals uncomfortable but we've got to figure out how to speak the gospel to a generation who just is not impressed. They're just not impressed by um, whatever you've got going on this Thursday night at church. And yeah. there's a lot there and there's no way we can cover it today. But what I would say is, Jen, I would actually say what we're doing with Neighborly Faith and college students, one of the reasons we're so successful is we're using a lot of the same tools that Springtide you know, really emphasizes in, in their research, which is the power of relationship and the power of you can't impress a young person anymore with a degree or a pedigree or a, or a really great title or an interesting looking hat. It's, it's like, how much time have you spent with them? Do you remember their birthday, what they're studying in school, their favorite movie? Do you know that? I mean, only 10% of Gen Zers told Springtide that over the course of the pandemic, a faith leader reached out 10%. Wow. And that goes both ways, right? They don't trust the church, but the church ain't reaching out. Yeah, because the church is thinking, gosh, why didn't you just respond to our mailer? And it's like, no, you got to be you got to be you got to put your butt in the seat across the across the table from them at the pizza place. So I noticed that you rebooted the Neighborly Faith podcast, like I said before, uh, Ryan Burge, great, great guest. We've had him on this this program. And, you know, for a guy like that to give you props on that, um, on your 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 research, uh, again, it's called Who is Influencing Young Evangelicals on politics that's a big deal but some of those conclusions that you derived is that is that why you got back into doing a podcast like you're because listen millennials are listening to podcasts all day every day is that is that one of the reasons you rebooted it or well i gotta i gotta you know i gotta give some credit to podcasts you know i've been listening to the 60 songs that define the 90s every night before i go to bed awesome i'm telling you i is the most sentimental hour of my whole day listen (laughs) listening to episodes on semi-charm life and, uh, you know, long December and this Janet Jackson song that I hadn't heard in 20 years, like yeah. dancing in cold black and you are free. <laughs> and I am like, I can't believe I'm talking to you about this right now. Cause I thought, gosh, if anyone saw me right now, their opinion would change. But anyway, <laughs> so I gotta, you know, I gotta throw it out there. Ryan Burge is such a great dude and he is one of the best public religious demographers out there. And for people who are like, what are you even talking about? He knows the data he knows like when thousands of people are t- are pulling about yeah. what they think about god the universe and everything he knows that all he knows it all and he dude knows how to make a chart we were talking to philip he's Bonk not even about, a jerk he's yeah, not even a jerk he's not he's just he's really cool he's geeky in the coolest way you know i know i know <laughs> and like i love the guy to death and um i wish he was lived closer i feel like i would be buying that guy just drinks all yeah. day long yeah because he just he knows it all um yeah, some of these people that we're bringing on for our podcast on this study are no-brainers. They're people who are thinking about the intersection of America's youngest generations and their motivations for why they vote the way they vote, why they show up where they show up, why they help and don't help when they do that. There's a lot of data on whether young people are, are religious or not. 
we don't know what it means for them to be religious. And that's what we're trying to figure out with this study. What does it mean yeah. for them to be evangelical in society right now? And that looks different than previous generations. They're definitely more into climate. We'll say that. I did like that you defined evangelical, you know, because other surveys that I've read, it could be folks that just identify as evangelical, but they haven't been to a church in, you know, years and years and years. So it's self-identified evangelical. So I love how you kind of dig down deep on yeah. that. But it was pretty expansive, uh, almost uh, 2,000 people. Yeah, 2,000 people, 500 of them young evangelicals. So we oversampled, which is what you do Yeah. Uh, when you want to say something credible about a group, right? I've done a lot of research myself with different groups. And if you've got 10 Jews, you can't say anything about Jews. Right. right. Even, even if that might be nationally representative based on your sample. Right. So Jews and Muslims make up at most two percent of America. Right. Well, I will say I will say that if you interview one Jew, you'll get at least two opinions. If you interview two, you'll definitely get three or four. <laughs> That's right. That's right. But I'll tell you, I mean, this is this is for real, though. Like why you don't see a ton of studies out there on religious minority groups is because they're never oversampled in a study like so. If you interview, so if you pull a thousand people and your and your and your sample is representative of America, right? right. Then what is that? Uh, what's two percent of a thousand? Is it twenty? Two percent of a thousand? No. Wait. Yes. Yeah, it's yeah, twenty. Two yeah, percent of a thousand is twenty. Yeah. But what can you say about Jews and Muslims when you've only got twenty in the study, right? right? And so that's so people say, why did you oversample? That's why is because we want to be able to say things that are credible about evangelicals. So that's why we sampled so many. And we have this 10, these 10 items that essentially define what an evangelical is. So we know these are evangelicals. The, again, these aren't just like self-identified. These are people who read a list of questions like, you know, about Jesus and the Bible and God, and they are answering them as a evangelical by definition would answer them. And that's what makes our study really, really credible in the area of these are not just kids who clicked evangelical because they were eating a burger and their hands slipped like this is very stringent and that's 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 really exciting for us because uh, i think a lot of people are taking the data seriously as they should because the method the methodology is rigorous yeah you so, know one of the um one of the things that ryan picked up on in, in your talk it, uh with him one of his observations was that while there's been this expectation that Gen Z evangelicals would be trending more moderate or even progressive than their parents in the church, that's just not the case. That young right. people who still identify as evangelical Christians are look. I hate to use the word conservative because conservative doesn't mean the same thing that it means in William Buckley's time and or you know, <laughs> um, but that they're looking, they're voting the way someone who identify as conservative today are voting. So my question though is whether there is just an overall decreasing number of young people identifying as evangelical in, in the first place. Are there more Gen Zers just drifting away from that particular religious identity? Well, our study doesn't answer that question so much, but um, it is uh, evangelical is a term that is becoming less prevalent. Absolutely. And more or less, I think, because it's become so politicized, the term. And especially as young evangelicals look a little bit more like their peers and a little bit less like their forefathers. Okay. Um, that term being politicized is, is not attractive to them. Now, I will say, you know, we hang out in rooms with students who are part of crew in Christian colleges and we use the word evangelical and they nod. Like it's not a, it's not like you're calling them Falwells, right? Yeah. Like they, they recognize the term, but, uh, 
if we aren't sure, we might use a term like Christ-centered, gospel-centered, convicted Christians. There's there's um uh, there's different proxies to use. In this particular study, though, it was really important to us to really capture the group that uh, we felt most represented the communities that we come from. Those are the, that's the group we know the best, and the group that I think is most susceptible to having a narrative drawn about them. I think if you were to ask the average person, how do you think a young evangelical will vote? How do you think a young evangelical spends their time? You, you might get narratives rather than data because okay. of the evangelical reputation. So that's why it was important to us to look at this group in the study and um, do it right. Yeah, yeah. You know, in another article that that you had published, I was surprised to learn that terms like bridge building, civility, common good, common ground, not particularly popular among young evangelicals. It's actually pretty good for me to know this. It's it's important. Uh, they had a higher degree of negative response from young evangelicals and other groups. Do you know why that is? I can tell you anecdotally, based on my experience, that Terms like common ground, common good, pluralism, civility have been adopted by center left groups who I think private, I would say, I would say this based on my experience, privately disdain evangelical belief and practice, but publicly to get the foundation dollars say we love everyone and we want everyone to show up just as they are. Now, I know that's cynical, but it is based on experience. There is a. Those terms are definitely used by orgs, again, that I think publicly respect the evangelicals, know they need to be in the room for bridge building efforts, but privately uh, have lots of issues and problems with the evangelical practice of evangelism, for example, or voting conservative um, yeah. or agreeing with the Dobbs decision, right? Like the sort of things that privately, if they're out to dinner or at a bar, they're like, ah, those jerks, right? But publicly, it's like, oh, yes, it's we need them in the room. They're such an important voting block in faith community. Right, right, right. There's so much to cover with you, but I'll ask the, uh, a good lawyer once said, make sure you ask the question, what did I not ask you that I should? Do you have anything else to say along those lines? No, I really appreciate this interview and the work you've done, Corey, to understand what we do and what we're about. And the, some of the recent work we've done is really amazing. And I feel really seen and heard and understood, which that's just a compliment to you. Oh, um, thanks, man. So I appreciate like all the effort that you put in. It's it's uh, really a difference maker in the conversation. I really appreciate that. Yeah, no, you're you're a really special podcast host for sure. Thank you. Uh, so Thank I'll you. say that. Um, I would love to talk just briefly about the study for one for one more second because I think. Yeah. Um, so what I would say is a, another really important finding from the study is that young evangelicals are invested in the good of the communities that they live in. Oh, yeah. I think a lot of people think evangelicals are the frozen chosen. They right. They live in their Bible studies and they come out to vote against the left. And then they, you know, they've got their Fox News and, you know, um, you know, everybody's bigoted, whatever. Um, but young evangelicals are in our poll and, and we interviewed evangelicals and non-evangelicals. So we interviewed people of other faiths. We interviewed mainline Protestants, evangelicals in the whole, in the aggregate. So so all together, on average, are more participatory in civic life and voting. Let's see, uh, nonprofit work, helping out their community. Um, they are very engaged. And I think that is that is an inch again, an interesting departure from what you would normally expect. I think people think young evangelicals, they're not going to be on the streets 
being active and advocating for policy and protesting. And they are going to be, you know, like they're going to stand back and vote. And I think our study really subverts that idea that maybe young non-evangelical Democrats hold the corner of the market on being out and loud and proud and, you know, charity work. And no, that's not the case at all. I think young evangelicals are potentially some of our best and brightest and they deserve the encouragement in their faith. Now, of course, there's going to be aspects of anyone's religious faith and practice that is problematic and makes for division and polarization in society. But for the lot of young evangelical faith that contributes to the good of our world, they should be encouraged. We should be uh, pouring ourselves into them and ensuring that their faith is a benefit to all in society, that we are known as the most generous and hospitable neighbors in society. I think young evangelicals can do that. And I think that's good news for everyone, that there may be a little bit less like like maybe the evangelicals that some of us don't like and a little bit more like the evangelicals we all know and hope they could be. I think our study really that and I think it's exciting. Yeah, I was I was curious um, about that because I saw how many different data points came up that pointed to exactly that, that community engagement, uh, charitable work is uh, fairly high uh, yes. in young evangelicals. So again, my cynicism kicking in is- Yeah, kick it in. Is the is the charity work there so that the bait and switch can happen? Okay, we're here feeding the homeless. Yeah, uh, you know, but but now we have to you know share the gospel. Yep, I think that is a fair uh, question, and hopefully more organizations like Neighborly Faith can be there to replace like the the hit and run kind of gospel work with sustained, committed relationship. I think. Relationship. Yeah. Um, Gosh, I think that could just make such a difference. And I think the, I think Christians have the resources to be those people, to be present with people, um, to walk with people through trauma and suffering and everything they go through. I do think Christians can do that, but we've got to be willing to just be in really, we've got to show up. We got to be in relationship. And, um, yeah, we, we, we meet with young evangelicals all the time that give us hope who are, who are doing, who are showing up. And that's why we're working with them because we see some really great resources there. Uh, some good, um, uh, you know, there's the wood. We're stoking the fire. Awesome, awesome. Do you have any questions for me, Corey? I I, I really am excited about the opportunity to get to know you more. And um, I, I think if I could ask you one question, it's like, what are you most excited about when it comes to your podcast work right now? Like, are you excited about the conversations, the direction of conversations? Like, what are you most excited about right now for your podcast? I am excited about getting to talk to really cool people. You know, I'm not nice. just saying that, you know, like you're, yeah. you're, you know, I get like, there are people whose work I've been following uh, some of the best writers in the country um, that I've been reading for years. And I don't come from that world. I, I'm, yeah. I'm not an elected official. I'm not a, an academic. I'm not a writer. And yet people who I've admired their work for years and years and years have come on this show. Yeah. You know, faith leaders, Dr. Russell Moore came on the program. Oh, man. And those conversations, yeah. Ryan Burge, I mean, yeah, Ryan Burge, yeah. those conversations are just awesome. And I've made some real friends. Talk about relationships. Yeah. Two, um, two people, well, three in particular, um, I'm now working with. I'm working with Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a, a justice leader and a religious, you know, a Christian justice leader. Um, and I, I've become friends with her and I'm, I'm working with her. Um, my friends, I mentioned the Village Square earlier. You know, I've become friends with the folks who who run that and uh, working with them as well. So it's it's really cool, number one, just to be able to have conversations with people who are doing really great work that you admire and respect. 
but also the relationships now that have have evolved that have come out of these conversations. And I'm really curious to see where this goes. Uh, hopefully, I won't screw it up too much <laughs> along the way. Yeah. You know, as uh, as we humans inevitably do sometimes, but you know, if we can give each other some grace, that'll help the relationship too. Just makes it more interesting along the way, I guess. So yeah, no, I love that. I love that you're having the guests on that you admire. I think that's that's what makes part of the podcasting worthwhile. I've done a little bit myself, and it's it's getting the people on who you've like always wanted to have that one on one conversation. You actually get to do that when you're yeah. podcasting. So uh, man, all the credit to you. This has been a great experience. I'm so glad you had me on. Yeah, you bet. You bet. So tell folks how we can find you online, more information about Neighborly Faith and all the great work that you're doing. Yeah, you can find me on Bumble and Hinge. If you um, change your parameters to uh, 30s and no, I'm just kidding. Um, those are dating apps. <laughs> like, where um, are we going with this? <laughs> That's awesome. Please don't edit that out. Please do not edit that out. Um, in there, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you can find us at neighborlyfaith.org. You can email me at Kevin at neighborlyfaith.org. I'd love to hear from you if you've, especially if you're a faculty member at a Christian college out there somewhere, want to bring a Muslim in from an, you know your topic or major or expertise to talk to students. We've, gosh, those are such fun, fun opportunities. Um, and uh, if you're in the Philly area, I'd love to hear from you. I'll be there next weekend. Uh, if you're interested in learning more, love to grab coffee or a meal or something. Um, and uh, thanks for uh, supporting us. And uh, we'd, we'd love to be involved with your organization. We'd love to partner and anything we could do to get Christians and Muslims together, we'd love to be a part of. So That's love to awesome. hear from you. That's great. Terrific. And we'll be sure to put those links in the show notes uh, for Neighborly Faith and to your Bumble account. <laughs> yeah. Make sure you tag my Bumble account. If you're looking for somebody who does outreach to Muslims who, you know, lives in a certain square mile area, North Carolina and you know, you loves, go. loves, uh, you know, curry. I'm your guy. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. All right. And with that, as always, if you dig what we're doing here, please hit that subscribe button, leave a review and comments wherever you get your podcasts and tell a friend about TPNR. We're so easy to recommend. It's politicsandreligion.us, www.politicsandreligion.us. You can find me online at Corey S. Nathan. That's Corey with an E and S is in Sam at Corey S. Nathan. Now, Go talk some politics and religion with gentleness and respect and have a great week. Thank you for joining us today. If you dig what we're doing here, it is super easy to follow us. You can go to our site, politicsandreligion.us. That's with the and spelled out, A-N-D, politicsandreligion.us. And we're on all the socials at TP and our pod, you know, TP and our pod for talking politics and religion pod. And here's a big way you can support us by becoming one of our patrons. You can even become a producer or executive producer of our program and have a lot more say in who we bring on, the kinds of questions we explore, or just help us keep the lights on. But mostly, we really appreciate you giving us a listen. So for the whole team here at Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, thanks for hanging out with us. We'll be back in a few days to do our little part in Tikkun Olam.